We're going to talk some numbers. We warmed up earlier this hour with a little bit of math, just a little bit. We were able to add to 52. (laughs) We're not going to try and do that again. That hurt. But here's a question. We have interest payments that are being paid by provinces, by the federal government, and it adds to a lot of the money that is going out in Canada. What role do these things really play, and and are they that big a deal? When we have an economics question, we like to call on a good friend of ours, Moshe Lander, who's a senior lecturer in economics at Concordia University. And Moshe's been nice enough to join us today. Moshe, how are things? I'm doing well. You obviously must be uh, avoiding economic topics. I haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> I know. And, and you know what? We said it. We, we hurt to count to 52. So, yeah, we have been avoiding some economics <laughs> topics. So let's dig into this one because interest payments are tough right now on anything. If somebody has interest to pay on a mortgage, if somebody has interest to pay on a car loan, there's a very good chance that they're paying more than they used to be. We rarely sit back and think, oh, yeah, yeah, we're helping the federal government and the provincial government pay interest, too. How big a deal is this? It is and it isn't. Uh, you know, it's, it's natural that the government is going to have some debt, uh, even if we view that they can balance their budget on a year-to-year basis. They do have capital expenditure projects, things like you know, building bridges and infrastructures and hospitals and roads and things like that. Those aren't the type of things that you finance based on the taxes that you receive this year, because they're going to last decades, you need to finance it over decades. And so it requires borrowing. So part of the cost of borrowing then is that you not only have to repay the money, but you also have to pay the interest. Government, like you said, is no different than the rest of us, that when interest rates go up, uh, more of the, the money that they collect in taxes has to pay that interest, and less of it is available for social services or the day-to-day operations of government. Okay. So when we look at at these expenditures, I mean, if we grabbed any random country anywhere, are we going to find similar things right now? Yes. Uh, Every country has debt. And so even if you look at some of the rich uh, oil countries that you think that uh, they can't possibly have debt, they do. Uh, You know, in a given year, they cannot generate enough tax revenue or enough revenue from oil or gas or whatever it is that they're a resource of choice might be to pay for all of the major infrastructure projects. So they, they do have that debt. The, the comparison that I can make, though, is let's say that you have some debt. There's a good chance that it's backed by an asset. And so even though, yes, you have to pay interest on your debt, I would also want to know, do you have assets that are more valuable than the debt itself? Because in that case, maybe the debt wasn't a bad thing. Many of us take out a major debt to buy a home. And we hope that the home is valuable than the mortgage, which is fine. So same thing for economies. The the government owns a tremendous amount of assets, and hopefully those assets are worth more than the debt that they took on to to build those things or to pay for those things. That's got to be a toughie right there in in trying to find those assets or trying to have those assets. Because like you say, we all try and do it, but who knows? Maybe you buy a house and then a rendering plant moves in next door, and next thing you know, it's not worth as much. Yeah, and it's also in the case of the government, some of the assets that they have are fundamentally unsellable, right? So, you know, some of the government's biggest assets, for example, are national parks or provincial parks, but it's impossible to imagine that you're going to sell off BAM for that you're going to sell off Mont Tremblant or something like that uh, to a local developer. And so, 
you know, even though the assets are extremely valuable, they're, they're not sellable. You at least have the option that if somebody comes along and gives you an offer you can't refuse on your home, you would sell it and be able to finance paying off your debt. The government uh, merely has paper assets in some cases, and that makes it a slightly more complicated calculation, too. Moshe Lander joining us as we talk about government interest and how it impacts us as we talk a little economics. Moshe is a senior lecturer at Concordia University. So in terms of maybe the interest payments, we know that if you go and get a payday loan, you're going to be paying high interest. Does that factor in when governments are paying interest? Not really. Actually, if anybody can borrow as cheaply as possible, it's the government. So whatever interest rate you're borrowing at, the government is borrowing at less. And the reason is that the government has, we call it the uh, monopoly of uh, power. Uh, The government can always come along and say, hey, I got to pay this money. I'm raising your taxes or you can go to prison. Uh, If I can't afford to pay my mortgage, I can't go tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, give me money or else, at least without the risk that I'm going to prison. Uh, So, you know, the government has that that ability then that they will never really have to worry about defaulting on their their interest payments. And so because there's really no risk that they're going to default when they borrow, they get to borrow at a better interest rate because they're less of a credit risk than you and I might be. Ah, I get it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's at least a bonus because ultimately it's us who are helping to pay interest payments. It is, and we pay that through our taxes. Uh, but the theory, at least, is that the government, if they're using that money that they're borrowing to better our lives, then we shouldn't mind paying taxes to finance the borrowing that was necessary to create those projects. The problem is when the government spends that money wastefully and it doesn't leave any residual benefits. So an analogy that I could give you then is let's say that you borrow your line of credit to improve your home. You do a renovation or something like that. That's probably a worthwhile debt to take on because you assume that you're going to recover it when you sell your home. But if you take that same amount of money that you borrow and you go binge on a weekend in Vegas, while you might have a very fun weekend, it doesn't leave any lasting benefit. And so in that case, it's very wasteful money. In both cases, you have to pay back the money, but one is slightly easier to justify than the other. Same thing for the government. If they're just borrowing money and spending it recklessly, taxpayers are going to get upset saying, but you didn't leave behind any residual benefit for us. If they're spending it in a way that benefits our generation and future generations, I don't mind paying taxes to make sure that my, my kids have a better life. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Moshe Lander joining us, senior lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, here we sit. We've got the Bank of Canada that has decided not to move on its key lending rate. How big a conversation is that in the economics world right now? I, I don't think that the move this week was surprising to anybody in economics. It was, it was pretty clear that, you know, the Bank of Canada only has three directions to go, up, down, or stay the same. They weren't going to increase interest rates because inflation remains stubbornly high. They've been doing that for the last two years. And when you increase interest rates, it takes about 18 to 24 months to work its way through. So we still have interest rate increases from last year that have yet to fully impact the economy. They can't cut it either. I know everybody's talking these days about when's it going to happen, when's it going to happen. But inflation has to come down below 3%. It has to stay below 3%. And the Bank of Canada needs to be convinced that we believe it's going to stay below 3% before they can cut interest rates, given that they meet every six or seven weeks. That means that, yeah, they're going to punt this one to March. And in fact, I even think that they're going to keep just kicking this one down until we get to the second half of this year, 
before we see interest rate cuts. So the only thing that's left then is you just leave it where it is and say, we'll reconvene in six or seven weeks. Okay. And in in doing that, when, when we see things come down, people are always wondering, are we going to get back down to 2%, 3%? Is that something that was just an anomaly for a little period of time, or is that something that conceivably could happen again? So it could conceivably happen again, but it would have to be in a disaster, right? So we saw that happen during COVID, or we saw that happening during a housing market collapse in the U.S., like something catastrophic. Uh, you can see it fall that low, but that is an anomaly. We generally don't have major catastrophes happening regularly. So I think that the expectation that's reasonable is if you imagine that the Bank of Canada right now is sitting at their interest rate is 5%, and that sets all interest rates accordingly, they could probably operate in a stable, normal environment at about 35 to 4%. It means there's a room for 1% to 1.5 percentage points in cuts from them, which will show up then in our mortgages and our lines of credit, car loans, payday loans, should all fall about 1% to 1.5 percentage points. The only thing to be careful of is that the way that it's going to come down is not the way that it went up. It went up fast and it went up aggressively. This is going to come down slow and it's going to come down very measured. Uh, you can expect maybe the cuts to start in the second half of this year and it'll probably continue on into 2025 before it settles down towards the end of next year. So it's, a, it's going to be a slow process uh, undoing what was done. Sure. And, you know, like you say, it, it's not going to come down as fast. What would happen or what could happen if it did try to come down fast? Well, so the risk that the Bank of Canada has is, and the reason why they're going to keep holding off on cutting rates is that they need to be convinced that Canadians understand that the inflation that we saw over the last couple of years is also an anomaly. For the last 30 years, the Bank of Canada has successfully delivered inflation of around 1% to 3% a year, which is their sweet spot and their target number. So they've achieved their goals. The last couple of years, they've kind of lost control, and part of that's the residue of, of COVID and all of the restrictions. Uh, what the Bank of Canada doesn't want to do is slash interest rates and give everybody this euphoric feeling that let's get back to the way it used to be, because uh, the way it used to be was with a lot of inflation. <laughs> and we collectively lost our minds over rapidly rising grocery prices, rents, gasoline. Uh, they don't want that to happen again. So they're going to cut a little bit, make sure that we remain level-headed. And then if they see that, yes, we know how to manage this, they'll cut again, and they'll see if we know how to manage it, and then they'll cut again. <laughs> it, it, it sounds so you know so strange to hear it, that that's the way it would go, because it, it does come down to us. If, if we go on spending frenzies right off the bat, could that alter plans? Absolutely. And so what would happen is that they'd have to go back and increase interest rates. Um, and so the Bank of Canada is not in the popularity game. They're not elected. They don't have to face us in an election. Uh, but they do have a responsibility to keep inflation low. And so, uh, you know, if they see that there is a spending frenzy, that is going to trigger inflation again. And so they do understand that that's not in anybody's best interest. Uh, the only reason that, like I said, it was allowed to happen was because of the, the COVID restrictions. And this was maybe a side effect of it. So as long as we don't have those catastrophic situations, the Bank of Canada has given 30 years of stable, low inflation. They want to continue to deliver that. And so that's why I said that one of those three boxes that has to be ticked is not just that inflation comes down and stays down, but that we believe it's going to stay down. If we think that, oh, here comes inflation again, they're going to say, ah, you backed us into a corner. We have to increase interest rates to show you don't think that we've got it under control. Moshe Lander joining us, senior lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, just one more thing, and that is 
in the late 70s and early 80s, we started to see some moves that eventually saw interest rates shoot up, and, and we saw double digits, and we saw high double digits. There were some mortgages out there that were signed on at, what, 19 20%, depending on where you were getting them from. And so that was, that was something we never wanted to go back to. Do we look at maybe what the Bank of Canada has done this time around and say – good job are we ready to do that yet that we didn't see a complete spike i would and the difference between then and now was that in the early 90s the bank of canada was given autonomy they were they were cut loose from the government and so that eliminated the ability for politicians to interfere with the decision making of the bank of canada and as part of being cut loose the bank of canada was told in exchange for your autonomy you have one goal and only one goal you keep inflation between one and three percent Other than that, we're not going to interfere. And so in the 1970s, 1980s, you would have what we would call the political business cycle. And so right before an election, if you're worried you're going to lose power, you tell the Bank of Canada, start printing a whole bunch of money and stuffing it in people's pockets to keep them happy. And then when the election's over and we've won, we'll go collect all that money back. Um, Now that they're unelected and they don't have to account to the Canadian public for that sort of thing, they can say, hey, my job is to keep inflation between 1% and 3%. Uh, this has nothing to do with whether a party's going to get reelected or not. So we've got our eyes on the prize, and we're going to make sure we deliver. Moshe, always love talking with you. Thank you so much. I hope all is well, and I promise to bring up an economics topic sooner rather than later next time. Very good. Looking forward to it. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Take care. That is Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer in Economics at Concordia University.